0: Section twenty of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part three, Chapter Three, The Century of Louis the Fourteenth. Part two. On the morrow of the Fronde, the king had celebrated his accession to power by a medal struck with the inscription Order and Felicity and the people had believed they were to see again the prosperous days of his grandfather henry the fourth but he brought them no peace but a sword war upon war inflated france with an atmosphere of glory and grandeur the peace of westphalia left vanquished the empire the peace of the pyrenees humbled spain in sixteen seventy the king occupied lorraine two years later he conquered holland took Franche-Comté, again attacked the empire, and soon decided to wage two wars at once, against Spain and against that old enemy of Spain, our England. War is the king's sport. He loves war for war's sake as well as for the praise and the profit that it brings. Henry IV thought of the country, Francis I thought of his knightly honor, Louis XIV, thinks of history and the world's admiration his eye is always on the gallery the words fame renown posterity are never absent from his mind his letters and memoirs are eloquent in this respect i envisaged with pleasure the idea of these two wars as a vast field of activity whence at any moment might arise opportunities and great occasions for distinguishing myself and answering to the brilliant expectations which i had already excited in the public i ruminate in my mind the plans which i have conceived plans not impossible how fair they seem i determined as more advantageous to my plan of campaign and less common from the point of view of the glory to be gained to attack at the same moment four places on the rhine and to command in person the four besieging armies i hope none can say that i have disappointed public expectation and in fact in four days between the fourth and seventh of june sixteen seventy two the four besieged fortresses fell the pomp and splendor of these armies was worthy of a prince and a fairy tale every campaign ended in a sort of royal pageant Coaches of crystal and gold, horses draped in cloth of gold, courtiers and conquerors dazzling with diamonds, ladies all silks and plumes and laces. Solomon and Darius were outdistanced, writes Coligny, in describing the campaign of Flanders. And to our mind, the small size of these armies is as remarkable as their magnificence. Probably Louis the Fourteenth never possessed more than 200,000 soldiers. In 1672 he invaded Holland with 172,000 men, divided in two armies. It was the first time in modern times that so great a concourse had ever been assembled, and all Europe felt its peace and its equilibrium threatened by such a preponderance of force in the hands of so ambitious a prince. The cost of these campaigns was immense, And it is marvellous that France resisted during fifty years the continual drain of men and money. But Louis had been no less fortunate than his father and his grandfather in his choice of a minister. He drove the car of the state with a pair Louvois, who organized his armies, and Colbert, who helped him to govern his kingdom. Neither one nor the other was a prince of the church like richelieu and Mazarin colbert was the son of a merchant of rheims the very incarnation of the burgher spirit regular hard-working economical a hater of waste and profusion the letters of colbert to his king are an excellent commentary on the history of the reign in sixteen sixty five he begins with his protestations i have fancied that your majesty was beginning to prefer amusement and pleasure to any other thing Colbert was a marvellous administrator. In ten years he doubled the king's revenues. But his factories and model farms, his canals and his colonies, his fleet, his finances, could not bring money in as fast as Louis spent it. Colbert kept the king's accounts. He directed himself no less than six ministries, was Chancellor of the Exchequer, Minister of Agriculture, director of the board of trade chief lord of the admiralty home secretary and colonial secretary colbert worked sixteen hours a day and every day in filling the treasury of france but the king with his wars and his mistresses his pleasures and palaces spent four and twenty hours out of every day and night in emptying that golden hoard already in sixteen seventy the expenditures exceeded the receipts by three million livres by sixteen eighty the deficit almost reaches thirty-five million if but the king would limit his expenditures to suit his revenues but louis had never cut his coat according to his cloth sa majesté n'a jamais consulté ses finances pour résoudre ses dépenses would he but consent to confine himself to a budget of 60 million trois fois autant que henri IV et jamais dépensé and the indefatigable minister promises that the country shall support the strain but louis's thoughts were elsewhere he is thinking of his projects qu'ils sont beaux he is dreaming of the praises of history which are he says exquises and Colbert begins to speak of the ruined provinces, of the difficulty of setting in the taxes, mutters something of a universal bankruptcy, till having, at four and sixty years of age, no longer the strength to support attention never relaxed and a hopeless disappointment, he dies, so to speak, at his desk. Thenceforth the affairs of France go steadily and rapidly downhill. Louvois, uncompensated by the frugal the prudent colbert spent vast sums in reorganizing the military strength of france the fiscal system was deplorable and colbert with his sincere love of the working class his interest in commerce and agriculture was no longer there to correct by a wise supervision and protection the abuses that the system entailed the poor were more and more oppressed in the preceding century when france was more than half ruined by the wars of religion henry the third as a last desperate expedient for raising a considerable sum of ready money had farmed out certain taxes for a sum paid down to certain financiers who were to collect them at their own risks and pocket the difference this odious system was now efficiently organized the crown with its desperate deficit sold its taxes dear the landlords at versailles or the army were in nine cases out of ten absentees the peasants of france were therefore at the mercy of the tax collectors who squeezed them hard and strong these farmers general or crown agents were as a rule men of no birth no gentle or noble tradition a large proportion of them had risen from the servant class had been lackeys or butlers in noblemen's houses, then stewards, and so had obtained, through their master's influence, some small receipt of taxes from whose profits they purchased in time an agent's office from the crown. Such were Gourville, Paul Poisson, Lange, Dalisle, etc. The list is long of the multimillionaires who began life in the servants' hall and lived to marry their daughters into the old nobility not all were such many of the fermiers généraux were enlightened patrons of the arts and some were cordial kindly souls like that cousin of madame de Sévigné, monsieur d'arouis who was says saint-simon le meilleur homme du monde et le plus obligeant, et ne savait que prêter de l'argent but these as a rule came to grief and we know that arouis died in prison as a rule they were hard clever industrious financiers such men says la bruyere who saw them in their splendour are neither kin nor kind neither citizens nor christians they are hardly men they are just rich people the literature and memoirs of the times are full of references to the cruel hardness of the collectors of taxes evictions forced sales of household goods fines imprisonments followed regularly in their wake the reports of the intendants a sort of royal prefects instituted by richelieu are full of compassion for the victims of a system they are compelled to uphold this way of gathering in the taxes is too cruel writes the intendant of amiens in sixteen eighty eight of all these taxes the most hateful was the salt tax and as it was comparatively easy to evade, dreadful punishments were meted out to the faux sauniers, that is to say, to all such as used, procured, or sold any kind of salt, save that to be bought from the king's officers. Men were deprived of their liberty for having boiled their cabbage in a little sea water to give it a savor. At Caen in 1678, others were kept for years in prison, half-starved, on the mere unverified charge of faux sonnage. in sixteen eighty four the intendant of soissons visiting the prison at guise found there eleven wretches men women and children for five of them were under thirteen years of age who for the last fifteen days had been crowded in a dark cell not twelve feet square which they were none of them allowed to quit on any pretext seven of whom were charged with smuggling salt and four with evading the tobacco-tax. At Verne, the salt-frauders were kept at the bottom of a dry well, quite dark, save for that one glittering star of the unattainable free daylight overhead, to which a ladder gave access, which was removed after the prisoner's descent. At Saumur, on one occasion some salt-smugglers, kept too long in a dungeon under the moat, died on the staircase that led them to the light, suffocated by the first free blast of living air the salt tax was heavy the tax being twelve times the value of the substance taxed and obligatory since persons were not left free to say they had no taste for the condiment a minimum of purchase was imposed add to this royal mulcting of nature's natural mana the many local taxes on wood water forage and such like consider the exactions of the nobles who levied a tax of their own on the manorial mill and on the manorial oven which alone were entitled to grind the farmer's corn and bake his loaf for it was illegal to possess a mill or baking oven of one's own remember the obligation of stocking one's cellar with the landlord's vineyards and we see how the current flows which is bearing france to ruin and revolution let those who would learn more on these matters read vauban's Dime Royale, the correspondence des contrôleurs généraux in depping's edition or beaulieu les gabelles sous louis XIV. meanwhile at versailles the king in his splendour reigned in a palace such as the world had never seen glittering with mirrors and gold paved and lined with precious marbles decorated with paintings representing the battles and the triumphs of the great monarch and looking out over an immense park whose perspectives whose alleys and bosquets were peopled with bronze and marble statues and reflected in vast sheets of artificial water where lovely fountains played the king lived there in a perpetual feast of music he was personally an excellent musician adulterous love gaming hunting conversation and religious worship versailles which broke the heart of colbert For it helped that general bankruptcy he dreaded and cost around seventy millions of francs, which we may assess at three hundred millions of our times. Versailles had this further effect that it isolated the king from the nation as no king of France had hitherto been separated from his subjects. Versailles is a world away from that oak tree of Vincennes, beneath whose boughs Saint Louis used to sit and judge the quarrels of his people the last years of the roi soleil were not happy the sun set in a bank of ominous clouds the king who in his youth had shown a certain quality of sound good sense and natural moderation even in his excesses was soured and hardened by the abuse of power he sacrificed all reality and nature to an artificial conception of unity and authority he could not endure that any of his subjects should venture to differ from his view of things in sixteen eighty five he revoked the edict of nantes of fifteen ninety eight by which his grandfather had conceded liberty of conscience and certain humble and fragmentary freedoms to the protestants of france the france of louis xiv must come into the king's pattern after odious persecutions and more than mediaeval cruelties the bolder spirits fleeing from forced conversion death or the galley slaves hopeless oar, escaped when escaped they might for this resource was officially forbidden them and yet slipped away innumerably into england scandinavia switzerland germany and added in a few years one-third to the population of berlin two hundred and fifty thousand members of the reformed religion are said to have quitted france in consequence of the revocation Thus the king, who had raised his country to such a pinnacle of glory and grandeur, mulcted her not only in money but in men. Louis lived to taste the bitterness of defeat. More than once France was invaded, vanquished, Paris was threatened, and though when things seemed darkest a great French victory flung its weight into the scales and set things straight again, so that the ensuing peace of Utrecht in 1713 left france still the first power in europe with a french prince on the throne of spain still the victorious country was exhausted impoverished and generally hated by her neighbouring states the future loomed dark already in 1709 the king at versailles had listened to the angry cries and threats of the famished citizens of paris already france had left behind her the great proud pompous glorious august century of louis the fourteenth already people began to murmur of justice and freedom there was the first raw breath of revolution in the air the experiment of absolute monarchy had been tried and had failed we have raced through this admirable seventeenth century and seen but little of all that made it great as we may on a hurried journey cross the alps by night or past the italian lakes invisible and wrapped in mist having no time to delay even to see the world's wonders science that change in the point of view which suddenly transformed the small neat anthropocentric universe of the middle ages into the infinite cosmos the silence of whose endless spaces terrified pascal science with its discipline of doubt and the consequent reaction of passionate natures more than ever insistent on the need of sacrament and cross descartes and pascal bossuet and fenelon and the saints francis of Sales and the greater vincent de paul and the poets the greatest france has known between the chanson de roland and victor hugo corneille the prophet of honour courage and man's indomitable will racine the tender cruel interpreter of a broken heart in all its subtlety and feigned restraint moliere with his inextinguishable laugh his appeal to nature and reason la fontaine with his exquisite simplicity another child of nature and like moliere in his last reaction under all the fun and frolic infinitely sad we must leave these great geniuses and others though they illustrate and explain the century of louis the fourteenth and are indeed as much an integral fibre of modern france as shakespeare and milton are of modern england yet we must leave them behind us for sheer lack of time and space end of section 20